Hi everyone, welcome to the B2B Sales Podcast. I'm Thibaut. And I'm Ara. Every week, we interview thought leaders, experts, and top performers in B2B sales. During 30 to 45 minutes, we will deep dive into topics like modern prospection, pipeline management tactics, or innovative sales tools to help you navigate the complex world of B2B sales. We're on a mission to change the way society sees sales. This profession is one of the most rewarding ever, yet many people are afraid to do sales or they choose this career by default. This podcast is brought to you by Sales Labs. If you want to know more about our sales training and coaching programs, go to www.saleslabs.io. It's www.saleslabs.io. So get ready for your dose of sales wisdom and enjoy the show. So welcome everyone to this new episode of the B2B Sales Podcast. Today I have like a very interesting guest uh, that I've actually been uh, trying to get in touch with for a while and I'm super happy and uh, excited that he's here. So it's Francis Breau from uh, Mad Kudu. So just uh, a quick um, overview of what Mad Kudu is. So it's a lead scoring platform or at least at the time when I discovered about, about you, it was a lead scoring platform. I think you're doing a bit more uh, than that right now. But yeah, so I'll let you uh, speak and present yourself, uh, Francis. So welcome to the show. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, so I'm Francis Barrow. Yeah, I'm the co-founder and CRO at Mad Kudu. So I run um, pretty much anything that's on the on the customer side. So uh, sales, marketing, and uh, and customer success. Um, and yeah, Mad Kudu is. You can think of it as a lead scoring platform. Um, I think the broader vision and the broader value prop that we bring is a marketing ops platform. So we really mm-hmm. help um, marketers bring all their data together, um, you know, enable them to make smart decisions using that data and propagate those decisions across their different platforms so that they can maximize the efficiency of their stack. Okay. Okay. Good. And uh, can you maybe t- tell us a bit about your background, where you're from, and uh, yeah, because we can maybe hear. I mean, compared to me, it's nothing, but a tiny little French accent. So if you could tell us a bit, a bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I am. Uh, I was born and raised in France. Uh, I um, my background is initially in uh, in engineering, um, where I studied. Um, I majored in operations research. And- and then I did uh, my last year um, partly in France and partly at the Stanford B School. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of when I came to the U.S. and fell in love with California. And so now I've been living in California for um, actually this year is going to be the 10th year uh, that I am in the U.S. So um, fell in love with the place, with the dynamics of the, the Bay Area. Um, and yeah, having a hard time uh, thinking of going back. But yeah, I have this, I guess, like interesting uh, background that I'm French, I live in the U.S., and Matt Kudu is kind of broken into where we have um, an office in Paris and an office in the U.S., um, so we kind of maintain that duality. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, I've been to California twice, uh, didn't fall in love, mostly for the uh, the Caltrain, which I think is horrible, and uh, yeah, so, but like, I really like the uh, landscape, but I thought it was, you know, it was a very fast life compared to what we have in Berlin. So, uh, yeah, 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 you have to live close to, to where you work uh, to make it manageable during the week. Yeah. But if you like hiking, I think it's the best place on earth. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Good. Um, and so, so you said like really the topic, what we're going to talk about, you, you mentioned it really quickly. It's actually the, uh, you know, like that you've been setting a sales team in the U.S. and also like a development team in France, in Paris. 
Uh, and so I really want to dive deeper into the uh, differences you have and you see in sales between the US uh, and Europe. So just as a small intro, so typically what I, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts from uh, sales trainers and sales thought leaders actually in the US. And uh, what you hear about all the time uh, is that people will talk about which uh, college or university you've been to or which NFL team you're actually following. So that's something that is very common in the US and, uh, and, and to build rapport that, uh, um, and, you know, I found that it's like one of the most, um, like the, the thing that is used the most in the US, but in Europe, it's a bit different. So can, we, can you maybe uh, uh, share a bit like uh, of details on that and, and what differences you see between the two countries, like the two places? Yeah, absolutely. So I might take a slightly contrarian stand there, I think. And again, everything I'm going to mention is very specific to my experience and mm -hmm. um, maybe just for more context. So Madhuru, our core, at least the market that we are going off to today is uh, B2B SaaS mid-market. Mm -hmm. So we're talking to tech, uh, which, you know, is very different from my previous startup where we were selling to enterprise retail. So like mm -hmm. the likes of Uga Boss, Vineyard Vines, where I think in that case, for those bigger companies, like things were very different um, in the sales cycle. But I think looking at the B2B SaaS um, mid-market and SMB world, what I've found actually is that um, it's, so first off, the, uh, in the US, people are a little bit less risk averse, I mm -hmm. think, than in France. And um, they will uh, buy from someone that they don't necessarily know or trust as yeah. much as in, uh, in Europe. What I found is that when trying to sell to tech companies in Europe, you really have to build that rapport and you really feel like people have to trust you before they buy the product mm -hmm. from you. Whereas in the US, what I found is that um, people are much more interested in the product itself and the vision of where the company is going more than who the salesperson is. Okay. Um, and, and this has been super helpful for us because I do not watch the NFL. I, you know, could not care less about the NBA. Um, and I hope this is not going to come and bite me in the ass. But uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm still into handball. I actually play handball in the U.S. I'm still very much into European sports. Um, so I never get really to talk about uh, sports with, uh, mm -hmm. with prospects. And what I find is that um, they react very well to uh, a very pragmatic sell where, you know, we hop on the call and we just kind of go get down to business right away. Mm -hmm. And we just like start talking about that. And there's this interesting thing where if you look at the way we communicate in the U.S., people seem uh, maybe a little bit more friendly or it seems like they know each other a lot more just in the way we mm -hmm. like written communication is a lot more casual yeah. uh, than in Europe. Um, and at the same time, you're just, you just go quickly, uh, into business and you don't necessarily go and talk about like philosophical subjects, like the meaning of life or things like that. Whereas yeah. I feel in Europe, I've had those conversations with people that were prospects and we just start talking and we go a little bit deeper into like core life subjects. Yeah. Whereas in the U S it's funny because you, you walk into these conferences and you're hugging everyone and like everyone is acting like their best buddies, mm -hmm. but it's, it, for most people, at least, it's only on the surface. There's yeah. fewer people where you get to have these more, um, I guess, these deeper conversations. So I think there's there's an interesting thing there where uh, you can like really quickly get to that selling point, and people are about getting down to business, and they're maybe more trying to figure out like how to optimize their time and just like, I guess, like get uh, shit done, if I yeah. can say. Um, 
Whereas in Europe, there is this kind of initial dance of like trying to know each other. Who are you? Where did you come from? And I feel like in France, particularly the, the schools you went to is something that like you, you can tell people look at it a little bit more yeah. than in the U.S. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting topic, actually. So on my side, I've been selling to in France for, I think, three or four years. And, uh, you know, I can absolutely confirm that, that you need to, to build a rapport, actually. However, on the other side, and I would like to have your point of view on that, uh, I've been trained on, on really American techniques for sales. So I've, I've, I've went through, the, I've gone to the, the Sandler uh, sales training where you start with an upfront contract and then you go into a paint funnel. And, and I found that the, the super direct approach, like working like in the US with French people sometimes actually is very interesting because it's super refreshing for them. You know, because you have a lot of people who are these kind of uh, very experienced salespeople, and then they start talking about the kids and everything. And, you know, like after three hours, you, are, you have like lunch and everything. Everyone's drunk, but like you didn't actually go, you know, to business. And so for me, I found that taking this kind of different approach makes you position you as someone different. And it really served me. What do you think about that? Yeah, I fully agree. And I think especially with, uh, you know, at least again, on the tech market, the tech market being a little bit more global, I think what we see is, I mean, first off, like a lot of the European companies that we sell to also serve the US market. So they have a little bit of that influence of like trying to get quickly uh, to business. Mm -hmm. And they definitely appreciate the um, straight to the point kind of conversation and not trying to you know, learn the name of every single pet they have in the yeah. family and have had for their entire life. And you kind of get like, you know, straight to the point of like, yeah, this, I mean, we're here for a business conversation. Uh, it might go beyond that and we might have drinks afterwards, but mm -hmm. right now we're doing work hours. And the reason we're talking is because, you know, we have software that can help you. You have money that can help us. Let's yeah. actually, you know, do a trade. Um, and, and I think that um, that's something that I've learned from um, my previous um, CRO at, at my previous startup, who is amazing. And so he actually closed a million dollar deal. And that was his opening sentence was, I have software, you have money, let's trade. <laughs> Love it. And it was like that kind of confidence was, yeah. it also set the tone of, we don't need any BS. Let's not go into like, let's just talk about how we're going to help you with our software and why it's priced at the price uh, it is. Mm -hmm. because the, the value you're going to get is incredible. Yeah. And, and that tone setting uh, helped make sure that there was no fluff in the conversation. Yeah. It was always about the value we were going to deliver. And I think it was also for that customer very refreshing because that was like a bigger retailer where they're used to being wined and dined, where people take them to restaurants, it yeah. goes on forever. And, and this was more of the direct approach. So I think definitely agree with the fact that in Europe it helps um, to go straight to the point. I think even in the U.S. when you're selling to some of these bigger enterprises that are used to the wine and dine situation, when you're maybe a smaller player, um, being really upfront uh, kind of sets you apart from the competition. Yeah. And it, that, that fresh approach, I think, is definitely something that is worth testing. Yeah, I think, yeah, like this uh, setting expectation early is something, yeah, it always serves in any kind of context. Maybe that would be different in, let's say, Asia, um, for example, my, my father like was selling and he built like a lot of businesses in China. And I'm not sure that would work this way. So, um, you know, that's, have, do you have experience selling in Asia or? I have very little, like the only experience I've had selling into, I mean, APAC. So like the, the Anglo-Saxon part of APAC, like Australia, New Zealand is very similar. To, mm -hmm. It's a mix of the U S and, and, um, Great Britain. So pretty straightforward. 
And selling into Asia, I've only done it through uh, partners because um, I found that it it is incredibly difficult. I mean, first off, there's the language barrier, which yeah. makes it difficult. And yeah, there's an understanding of the market, the dynamics, how you sell, that I think you need to be specialized. Uh, and so I have very little experience. But what I know is that it's not something you can't just replicate your sales playbook from the US and bring yeah. it to, uh, to Asia. Yeah, okay. Okay, I see. And so, so I checked actually the, the pricing you have on your on your website, and uh, to a lot of uh, so for a lot of my customers and people in Europe. So in Berlin, you you know it's kind of a booming uh, tech tech hub, and so there's like you know there's like a lot of small startups, and they they are like the SaaS thing is going really crazy there. But the prices like are really like the average size is really low. Uh, and so, so when I, you see a price, that, that's typically something where, you know, if you're in Europe and you start with this kind of price, like people who want to go and sell it will be super afraid and say, well, that's super expensive. Um, but like, um, can, can you maybe tell me about a, a bit more about like how you approach that, how it is in the US and in France or in Europe, like how people react to this kind of pricing? And uh, yeah, if you can tell more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's, it's fairly similar. And the way I like to think about this is ultimately, I mean, a purchase decision, when you start, there, there's an order of magnitude in the purchase decision based on the size of the company that, you know, order of magnitude is going to be different. Um, but let's say if you're selling to um, like a company of, let's say, 100 employees and you're starting to sell like a 50K uh, product, you, you get to that point where there's going to be a lot of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And what you really want to do in your sales cycle is help your champion de-risk that buying decision. Mm-hmm. And now the question becomes like, how do you actually de-risk it? Um, and you know, some companies are going to offer free trials, which I think are, are somewhat helpful, but they don't really help you sell at this like higher price yeah. point. That's why one of the things that we do is, um, so we started doing a lot of uh, pilots. So we would actually structure the contract by saying, you start with a two month pilot, pilot mm-hmm. that automatically uh, transfers into an annual contract. Yeah. Um, unless the customer opts out. And so that way you're saying, essentially you're really committing to only two months at this price point. Yeah. And then if you're not happy, I mean, you know, fair enough, we can stop and you're not going to have to pay the 50 K. Um, but if it works, then you now opt into the 50 K. So that yeah. way you can go sell this to the higher ups in your company and tell them, you know, there's a fairly minimal risk here because, um, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, like seven grand or eight grand, mm-hmm. um, and you're still under, yeah, 10K, so it's fairly, fairly cheap. And the good aspect from, from, for your business, at least when you're a startup, is that by doing this, you're also starting to build 14-month contracts, yeah. which doesn't seem like much, but when you're in the early phases, like you actually, like having your renewals pushed a little bit further is helpful because you want to focus so much on the initial growth of your customer base that pushing the renewals even just two months further out just like buys you more time to get, uh, someone in-house mm-hmm. uh, who's going to be your head of customer success who is then going to own all these renewals. Okay. Um, and so we found that to be super helpful in both helping the customer de-risk the purchase decision mm-hmm. and, you know, be able to, uh, you know, afford a higher price point yeah. and at the same time uh, make it easier operationally on us. So l- let me just summarize if I understood it properly, but basically you start with a two-month pilot uh, that is included into a, and that goes like automatically into a 12 month contract. So it's an opt out of 14 months, right? So it's an annual contract with an opt out uh, within the first two months, right? Well, 
to some, it's a 14 month contract yeah, yeah. with an opt out after two months. Yes. Okay. And, but okay. you structure it from a pricing standpoint where they pay the two months upfront. Yeah. And then they pay the next 12 months uh, if they don't opt out. Okay. So the okay. interesting thing by doing that is that there's no negotiation in terms of pricing at the end of the first two months. Like all yeah. the negotiation from a pricing standpoint happens upfront. Yeah. Um, so that means like you, your sales cycle kind of stops there to some extent. And then it's like onboarding the customer, uh, providing the value where now you're aligning sales and marketing and that initial kind of discovery of how your market reacts to your product and things like that. Uh, and then it opts into the, uh, the annual contract. And what we found also is that um, customers, uh, when you onboard them, I mean, they start having skin in the game because they start investing into the tool. They start mm -hmm. seeing the possibilities. So they have that emotional attachment to the project um, that kind of reduces the risk of opt-outs. Yeah. So we had like the, the percentage of opt-out that we had was really, I mean, it was less than, uh, less than 5% in the very early days of the, the company. Um, yeah, which was super helpful to grow. Okay. Yeah, actually, I, I never heard about the 14 months because I was doing a lot of annual with opt-out. You know, I was doing like one to three months uh, or like basically two months and then 10 months. So it was 12 months uh, in total and not 14. And what's the difference you see? Like, what is, is, like why is 14 months really a good number for you? I think for us, the, the, the real good thing, or this is again in early, early days, Mm -hmm. It was really the goal was just pushing further out the uh, the conversation about the renewal, just because uh, it was a time where the team is stretched. You don't necessarily have a full CS team that's going to be able to do renewals and upsells. So you want to grow the revenue as much as possible, hire the people in CS that are going to work on your net, uh, net retention. And then mm -hmm. once they're here, you're basically buying them two more months before they have to start doing this, uh, okay. um, this retention work. So okay. yeah, essentially the only thing you're doing is just like pushing further out that uh, renewal date. Yeah, I think that's insanely think, valuable. Yeah. That's like, yeah. yeah, I really like that because never heard about it, but like it's so critical because in general you, you're going to be selling and your team, like your CS team, as, as, as you said, maybe don't, doesn't even exist. And so buying these two additional months can really have a huge, uh, huge impact actually on the, on the renewal. Yeah, no, for us, it was crazy. It really helped, uh, like, focus on the growth of the business for a long time before we started focusing on, on renewals. And for the customer, it doesn't really make that big of a, of a difference, uh, interestingly. And however, like, as you get bigger and you start, you know, reporting, I guess, more precisely on your numbers and, um, and all of that, I think where this becomes tricky is that um, from a revenue recognition standpoint, you can no longer recognize the 12 months of revenue until you've been through the opt-out because of the way it's, uh, yeah. it's structured because you're really doing like a, a line item for a pilot and a line item for the 12 months. So really from a, essentially like you have growth in your business from uh, a revenue coming in the bank, but not really from a revenue, yeah. re recognized revenue standpoint that you can report to, uh, to the board or to, Central investors. So it works really well in an initial phase, but I think if you do this later on where you're starting to report metrics to more financially savvy people, you have to be really careful about how yeah. you structure it and get uh, good advice from a CFO that can help you um, structure it in a smart yeah. way.
Yeah, that, that's something I remember. I, I was like, we were incentivized on booking. And, uh, you know, at the time when I was working at, at Applause and we had this thing, you know, we're going crazy with annual with opt-out. And I, I was like, in the last week of the quarter, I was saying, hey guys, you know, I got a crazy deal for you. I can give you like, you know, you're going to have a crazy discount, but you have to sign this annual with opt-out. And I had like a few hundred K deals coming in. And, you know, two weeks, three weeks after they were out, but I had, you know, I had my commission, so I was pretty happy yeah. and the company was not, so they, they kind of like, you know, adapted. But I think for early growth, if you want to show traction and, and you want to show, you know, like if you want to basically raise more money, I think that's a super nice thing to do. Yeah. But as you said, uh, raise money and, and keep some money to hire a good CFO because you're going to need it after. Yeah. And, and I think, again, this works well when you're in the initial uh, stages of your, your selling motion. So when it's a founder led sales and you do, you're not paying yourself commission, it, it works well enough, but you really have to be careful and monitor that kind of opt out because yeah, you don't want to have like an artificial growth where you're selling a lot of these contracts and they all opt out. That's like really terrible. Again, like the goal of the, the opt out phase is solely to de-risk for the business, but you need to make sure it's still like an actual deal. Um, then it works, I think with like maybe like one or two, your first, maybe two reps. Uh, however, uh, the way we look at it is, yeah, you, we pay the commission once the opt-out phase is done. Okay. Um, we'll pay some some of the commission upfront, but then the rest of the commission, um, once people like go through the like uh, when we can actually recognize the revenue. Yeah. The reason for that is that your early salespeople, I mean, they are taking a risk, and you want them to be more problem solvers. So you want to incentivize them to to push and to test new things, but mm -hmm. you don't want to create a completely um, I guess like incorrect way of like correct uh, incentivizer just pushing them to sell these big deals with opt-outs yeah. that are just going to fall through the cracks. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and so on, on another topic, so, so you, we discussed off on the, about your, the brand you built uh, and you know, like the, the kind of crazy recognition you got with limited resources. Can you maybe tell me a bit more about how you did that? And yeah. Yeah, that's uh so that one is, I, is really interesting. Uh, I love how, very often people think that we're a lot bigger than we are. Um, I think we, there's a couple things that, uh, that we did somewhat right uh, to get to this point. The first thing is that we focused on a fairly small initial market to go after. Um, like going after a small market, the good thing is like most people know each other because like, mm -hmm. you know, experts move from one company to another um, and they go to the same conferences. They talk about, they share um, tools and things like that. So going off to that small market enabled us to create a brand within that small market that potentially mm -hmm. is, you know, irrelevant in other uh, markets. The second thing is that when we started um, going to market, we focused on a few companies that we knew uh, were very well regarded in the industry. So for instance, Segment was one of our first customers mm -hmm. and Segment was this rising star um, for, I mean, still is, but four years ago, they were really one of the big rising stars of SaaS. And so having them as a customer um, was really helpful because companies wanted to be segment. They wanted to grow like segment. They, they just aspired to have that kind of success. And so yeah. having them as the logo um, kind of like created this linkage of success by association where people mm -hmm. are saying, oh, if segment is a customer, you must be as successful as them or you must yeah. be a part of their success. So we want to use you. Um, so that was actually, um, I think, really helpful to, to develop that brand. And the third thing is um, we 
I think we didn't compromise on um, on the value that we gave in uh, in our sales conversations. I think it's um, it's really important to to know when to say no to a prospect and mm-hmm. um, to go into sales meetings and be very consultative and and not try to push. Right, I've had many sales calls where like the call is almost like a consultation on their sales funnel, what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. Yeah. And in the end, there's just no fit for Mad Kudu and it's fine. And I'm not going to push for Mad Kudu, but I'm going to actually going to try and help them figure out their funnel better so that when they get to the point, maybe a year, two years down the line, when now they actually could benefit from using a tool like us, I know they're going to come back to us because yeah. that one conversation we had was valuable enough that they remember me as someone who helped yeah. them. And, and that is something that I think goes back to the question of like, not necessarily talking about the NFL, but talking about the business and really like going deep into the business so that people see you as a, as a, a thought leader that can be a partner yeah. uh, rather than a vendor. And this like distinction to me is something that is really, really important. And we kind of hammer this on a lot at Madcrude is we want to be partners, not vendors. Yeah. And, and what that means is that you're not just so you're providing a tool, you're providing software, but that's just a means to ultimately help the company grow and do better. And, and that is the thing that we aspire to, to doing. And if we need to compensate gaps in the product with, you know, CS folks being a little bit more hands-on and helping customers create reports in Salesforce, that's fine. Uh, because that's how you actually build these stronger relationships from a business standpoint with the customer. And, and that, that is a deep connection that you have with other um, professionals that cannot be replaced through um, kind of surface level knowledge of yeah. their pets, their, you know, children's name. That's great. And it creates this kind of false sense of, um, of a relationship. But at the end of the day, like the, this business relationship is what is going to push people to come back and buy from mm-hmm. you again when they move to another company. And so we've had customers that um, at this point have moved um, four times. And so they've been four times customers from Madhuru. Whenever nice. they go into another company, they're like, oh, first thing I do is I sign uh, Marketo, I sign Madhuru, and like that's my stack that I yeah. bring in. Um, and, and you and double, think, yeah, you double the price at each, uh, you know, say, oh, sorry, guys, new price. That, that part is the tricky part, right? Because like <laughs> they know how much they used to pay. Yeah. Uh, so you can only increase uh, by so little. Um, but, but it definitely creates this awesome kind of ne- pseudo network effect where you're creating that brand because people know about you, they talk about you and they evangelize within the company. And when they leave, you now have a new group of people that have been evangelized and they go evangelize another group of people in yeah. another company. Yeah. That, that's what I call business karma actually. And, uh, and I think is like, as you said, being more like a partner and what you're doing is like a, a, a sales enablement tool. So it's like really uh, helping the, these people understanding, you know, understanding how you can, you know, how their sales process works and how you can really solve a problem. And if you can't, you know, telling it upfront, I think it's, it's super important. I've done it a lot. And now I'm actually refusing a lot of business on that because I know I could make some quick bucks, but in the end, I'm going to have a bad rap if I do that. And I think it's, you know, people, when they're ready, they come back to you and, uh, and they even refer you, even if they don't want to work with you, they're going to say, Oh, actually I know someone who could actually benefit from that? You, you need to talk to Francis. So I think that's, um, yeah, that's that's really the good way, to, a great way to go. And, and yeah, that's that's why you've been there. And 
Um, so on segment, actually, I would be super curious. How did you land them? If they were your first customers and you were unknown, can you tell me a bit the, the story about that? Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of, uh, uh, so <clears throat> we were actually building integration with segment at the time. So mm -hmm. we were in touch with the company. Um, and then, I mean, it was pretty much just, you know, we started talking to their um, engineering team for the integration. We asked uh, for an intro to their marketing team. Uh, we went on site and we start, we spent quite a bit of time with their team there, whiteboarding and understanding like what their flow was, um, what were the gaps in the solution that they currently had and how we could fit into that picture and solve that problem. And then we went into a POC essentially where they said, okay, like this all sounds great, but you guys are fairly small and new. Like at the time mm -hmm. we had one customer. Um, and so they said, let's try it. I mean, there's, for them, there was little risk, right? Again, like yeah. this was like in the early days where they were paying, I think they were paying a thousand uh, bucks a month. So yeah. like we're talking about running a $2,000 POC for them. You know, that's the price of having, you know, one engineer work on something for a week and a half. Yeah. So yeah. like when you put it in, like in that perspective, it, it's actually really cheap um, as a POC to run. It turned out that, I mean, it, it worked better than uh, they expected. So then at that point, they were like, okay, let's actually roll this out. Uh, they kicked out the um, competitor at the time that was uh, working with them and mm -hmm. they brought us in. And since then, we've been kind of, um, yeah, getting more and more deeply embedded in their systems. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting. And I think this, this consultative approach really helps building this kind of thing. And because uh, often I get a lot of people who are, uh, today, actually, I was into a workshop. It, it took me so much time and they were just like, I say, okay, tell me about your business. And for one hour, they started talking about their business. And so that, that happens a lot where people will pitch features, how amazing, how amazing they are. You're going to have like slides with uh, how many offices they have, uh, logos they have and everything. And no one cares, actually. They really care about if you can save them money or make them money. And, um, and yeah, so I, I think that's, that's something super important to make uh, in this kind of, of thing. So that's, that's one advice I would give to everyone is like, if you have a, you know, you don't even need to have a business to actually like find a problem and start selling something. So find the problem, quantify it, and then like have a solution with that. Then you figure it out basically. Yeah. So it's, and, uh, and go on site. I think that's one of the big learnings. So in the early days, I actually would go on site to segments office. Uh, once every other week and I would spend uh, between half a day and a full day in their office. It's okay. funny. I would just like walk into the office, say hi to everyone. And I had a little desk at the entrance Yeah. Uh, and I would just work there. And then like people would come over and we'd start talking and I started talking to sales ops, to engineers, partnerships team, marketing teams, the C the co-founders. Um, and what was really interesting was that um, first off being on site, um, the, the attention span that you get uh, is a lot higher. So yeah. people were really paying attention to the conversation. We were able to do whiteboarding of, okay, we're like, what does your setup look like? And you really go to a much deeper understanding of what they're trying to do, where the challenges are. And I think that's maybe the, like one of the big uh, piece of advice that, that I would give is like pretty obvious, but put in the work. Yeah. Like there, there's no other way than just, really going deep into solving uh, into problem solving and not trying to take any shortcuts mm -hmm. like really trying to solve the problem as if you were an employee at the company 
who was whose only job was to solve this problem yeah. and and not trying to just like oh I, I understood like one small problem let's try and push into that problem and yeah. just sell the product no really go deeper into okay I found the problem how can I solve it how am I going to test that I actually have solved the problem and how am I how am I going to help my champion sell the fact to the rest of the team that we actually did solve the problem like just going through that mental exercise of going through all the steps of what it actually takes um, your champion to go be convinced about this and convince other people mm -hmm. in the org about this and essentially convincing a CFO who doesn't understand anything about the sales funnel, but just understands the numbers yeah. is really critical and something that I think too many people try to skip and they yeah. just see They hear the, the words that say, Oh, I now know they have the problem. I can now sell them yeah. and they just push their solution. Um, and I think that that's the wrong way of, uh, of selling. Yeah, exactly. And th that's why I hate the like qualification framework like Bant, for example, uh, because they are too simple for me. I think and a, lo a lot of time people are here, okay, what's your budget? Or do you have authority? What's your need? And, and you know, when do you want to do that? And then they just go for that. And then you, you have a pipeline that can be, you know, full of like shitty deals. So I think it's, it's very important to have like, a, a, you know, better qualification actually. Um, so what do you use? Because that's your job, like scoring leads yeah. and everything. So I hope you don't use Bant. <laughs> So what do you use with kind of like a lead scoring algorithm you use, for example? Well, I mean, we use our own lead scoring algorithm uh, on our website. So when people come in, um, we have this cool feature when people come in to request a demo on our website, they're qualified on the fly. So they actually get, uh, if they are qualified, they'll get a pop-up that will give mm -hmm. them a link to um, one of our reps calendar so they okay. can book time directly. There's no back and forth over email. So we call this the fast lane. We, fast lane them into uh, a conversation. Um, but I think like beyond that, in terms of like how, once we're on the call with them, uh, we don't do bans to, yeah, I, I also hate that framework because again, it's just like goes with a very mechanical yeah. way of, of doing this. So generally the, the approach in the discovery call is going to be like going again, like very deep going into like finding the problem and um, working with the customer on that initial call to figure out, okay, like, so if we did this, would that work? What are the KPIs that we're trying to move? How would we measure it? And like you, at the end of that discovery call, you almost want to have, um, you should be able to write down a project plan. Yeah. Like, this is the problem we're going to solve. This is how we're going to solve it. This is the metrics that we're going to impact. And then the last question, um, like at the end of the call, I'm always going to ask, I mean, this seems to make sense. Um, I don't want to waste your time. You don't want to waste mine. This is how much it's going to cost. Uh, is this something that, you know, is likely to happen in the next month or so for that price point? So that's when I kind of do the band, yeah. essentially just like being very upfront of like, yeah. do you have money to do this project that we just talked about? Yeah. And sometimes they say, I mean, yeah, people are kind of sometimes put off uh, a little bit. They, they're like, yeah. Oh wow. Like that's, okay, that's great that you're asking me. Uh, I don't know. And if they don't know, that's really interesting because now I know that I'm, we're not necessarily talking to the right people. We need yeah. more conversations with higher ups. Um, we have other people who say, well, yeah, no, actually, like I should have checked your pricing, your price point, but this is way too high for us. And then in that case, we have kind of an exit path where we have a free plan through Zapier and we'll tell them, well, actually then um, use our Zapier integration. That way you can build all the flow that we talked about uh, mm -hmm. using the Zapier lead score. 
And then whenever that scoring is not efficient enough, then you can come talk to us okay. and we'll just like replace that block with the Mad Kudu block. Yeah. Uh, and then it will work better uh, for you. And if they do have, if they do say, yes, we have, you know, this is something that we need to do now and we have budget for it, then that's perfect because now we can talk, okay, like, yeah. how do we move forward then? Like, what are our next steps for you? Do we need to pitch to other people? Uh, and I like to keep it open of like, great, so what are our next steps to, you know, move this forward? Yeah. And then let them talk and tell you, oh, well, I need to bring on uh, my CMO. I need to bring on my CEO. I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to see a project plan, have it be approved. Um, and that's really helpful to know what is their internal procurement process yeah. rather than try and push uh, your uh, ideal procurement process, which is basically yeah. pushing people down the different stages of your Salesforce opportunity pipeline. Exactly. And I really love this kind of exit path that you talk about because then, it, you know, like they, they get value. They get value already and they know, you know, it's exactly the same kind of trend as you, as you talked before. They get this value. And as you said, like when it starts being like irrelevant for them, then they can talk to you again and they have the brand and everything. So I think that's like, makes me think of how I can do that myself. And um, yeah. but I think that's, that's really, really smart. And you do that like in 100% of cases or sometimes you have people who are like, okay, there's no chance uh, we can do anything or it's everyone goes to this kind of exit path. Well, yeah, it, everyone, I mean, we offer the exit path to everyone who's not a fit at the time, mm -hmm. just because, well, yeah, in some cases we talk like it, it rarely happens, but sometimes we talk to folks who um, just don't have, yeah, don't have a need for anything we do or like they sell to B to C or like some, some weird stuff. Like if for some reason they heard about us, but they're just not, not a great fit and we still take the call because we, we still want to talk to them and understand how they operate and, and learn from that conversation. Um, so in that case, we'll basically, uh, generally we'll recommend uh, competitors who can sol um, solve the problem in their market. Yeah. Um, just because, yeah, we have experience in the B2C side so we can actually tell them, oh, you know, go check out this company or this other company. We have folks who end up asking about um, like um, fractional revenue attribution on mm -hmm. the marketing side and we'll tell them, well, you know, we've tried solving it. We've seen like these companies are doing an okay job of it. So I think it, it's always really, really important to, to have that exit path and, and yeah, to leave the, the call with value. Yeah. But for anyone who is, you know, B2B um, tech, it, yeah, even if they're not a fit today, we'll push them towards Zapier and say, go use it because it's going to be super valuable for you to start thinking about um, creating two different paths for yeah. your leads that are of higher quality and leads that are of lower quality and start very simple and then start building on it. Like, yeah. and sometimes people really want to pay us, but we know that they're not at that level of maturity yet. And we know it's not going to be successful. And we'd rather tell them, well, actually, we really recommend you use our free tool. Yeah. Build that flow. We're more than happy to like, you know, give you links to articles and potentially even like do another call to help you figure this out. And once you have that and you're starting to see that there's still some leads that were actually really good quality that are going through the low quality um, um, path, mm -hmm. then come, you know, let's talk again and we'll actually uh, implement a better scoring. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's really nice. And, you know, providing value at every step of the, of the process. So I think that's, uh, that's, that's really interesting. That's the first time I hear that. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so uh, there's one question I have. So if you had like... Uh, if we have people from the U.S. who are actually trying to go to market in Europe, uh, let's say from the U.S. with an inside team or, you know, what would be the one advice you would give them? 
Yeah, that's that's a tricky one. I think it's uh it's similar um one way or the other. My recommendation is to have someone uh someone on I mean someone in that um geography. Um the uh I mean we, we did talk a little bit about it. Uh there are some nuances in how um people want to be sold and how uh people interact that I think are are very hard initially to uh um that there's a gap that's hard to bridge uh, mm-hmm. initially. Um, so either have someone locally, or if you're not sure that this is a market you really fully want to invest in, I would say identify companies that are um, that have this kind of dual um, localization where they're going to mm-hmm. have you know a team in Europe, a team in the U.S., and potentially try to find an entry point in the U.S. into the European yeah. office rather than try hitting the European office directly. Yeah. Um, because there is that, um, you know, I think Europe is a little bit more uh, conscious of like GDPR and like yeah. the, the privacy elements. Like they react to outbound campaigns not as well, I think, as the, the U.S. Yeah. Um, and that's particularly true if you go st- selling into Germany. I mean, you know more uh, about Germany, but my yeah. experience is that like, German companies and even Swiss companies are hardcore on privacy, way more yeah. than uh, than France or Great Britain. Um, I think, yeah, Great Britain is a good initial place to go to because mm-hmm. it it is very, I mean, it is in between, right? It's closer, yeah. I think, even to the U.S. and how it's sold to, but it's, it's a good stepping stone. Then France is another one where it might be a little bit trickier because people like to do business in French, yeah. even though most people speak English. Um, I found that the yeah, other a little bit more comfortable speaking uh, speaking French, uh, but yeah, and that's where having that intro through a, a U.S. branch makes it that much easier. Yeah, yeah, I really like that that advice. Also, I think it's like because if you have a presence in Europe, you know, it's uh, can be good. But like before, you know, trying to to go from the U.S., I think it's super smart. And as you said, in terms of priorities, U.K., France maybe in second, uh, DAF maybe like in, in third. So. Yeah, that's that's another discussion, but uh, that, that's very interesting. Um, so I think we're arriving to the end of uh, our time slot. So for, that's the time where you can actually pitch anything you want to pitch, like if you need to hire someone, if you desperately need money or anything. So, you know, go ahead. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're in a really exciting phase of the company where uh, we're looking to add uh, probably around 40 people this year uh, in all departments so um we're hiring like crazy um right now the big priorities are we're hiring sales reps because we have a little bit more um demand than what we can manage on the sales side so Mm -hmm. if you are an ae looking to do consultative selling and problem solving in the uh martech space um please reach out if you know anyone please reach out mm-hmm. uh, we're hiring um, engineers back-end front-end um, full stack in um, in Paris mm-hmm. same thing if you uh, know anyone we're super excited to uh, um, to check it out and we're hiring um, on the marketing side on the CS side uh, right now in California but uh, also in Paris mm-hmm. um, basically if you're in b2b uh, SaaS and you're excited to work for a company that is in this kind of hyper growth uh, phase where we um, have money and we're starting to really invest more into that growth and we have a solid customer base 
um, then yeah, we're uh, more than happy to to talk. And we have a careers page on the website. Yeah. Um, pretty easy to to figure to find out and to um, to apply for a job. And then if you um, are someone in marketing or in sales and you're trying to figure out how to optimize your uh, your funnel or what are some smart things that you could put in place, uh, then you should reach out on um, yeah again on Mad Kudu and there's like a contact page. We're more than happy to. Um, just broadly talk about best practices and what could help your business. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to put links on the career page uh, and, the, and the website uh, in, in the episode uh, summary. And so where people can actually hear more of you or get in touch if they want to ask you questions? Um, they can reach out to me. Uh, my email address is pretty straightforward. It's francis at madfood.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm usually pretty responsive there. Um, and then I would say maybe like check out our blog. Uh, we do post quite a, a few insights there and we try to keep it um, actionable and pragmatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some, yeah, we, we publish a lot of like how to's um, to help you build a more efficient sales organization. And so I think there's some um, really good resources there. Okay. I'm going to put all the links there. Good. So um, any last word? No, this has been uh, awesome. And yeah, I love talking about sales. Uh, I hope I didn't talk too much, but it's just a, a topic I'm really passionate about. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think there's um, there's a little bit too much fluff out there. And I'm excited to, to meet people who are, you know, who think in the same way about like being pragmatic and being helpful. Uh, I think, you know, that's the thing that drives success is always being helpful. Um, and so, yeah, I was really excited to, to do this. Yeah, thanks so much. That was really great. And definitely there was no fluff in, in the conversation. So yeah, um, thanks thanks a lot because there was a lot of great uh, actionable advices. So thank yeah, you, Francis, sure. and uh, have a good day. Yeah, thanks for having me. 